Welcome to the Path to CPO, where we peel back the layers of success and delve into the journeys of the most dynamic chief people officers. I'm your host, Nelson Sibelingham, CEO and co-founder of How Now. Together, we'll explore the trials, the triumphs and insights of these trailblazers across people, culture and HR at some of the fastest growing companies in the world. This is not just their story, it's a roadmap for all aspiring people leaders. Tune in, rise up, and let's embark on this enlightening journey together. Fidelma, welcome to the show. Thank you, Nelson. Delighted to be here. Um, I'm really excited to dive in um, to your journey to a CPO. Um, I wanted to start with, do you remember your first job in HR? Yeah, it was probably a temp job um, doing kind of paper pushing in a HR office in a pharmaceutical company in my hometown of Bray in Ireland. It was not very exciting. Um, I can remember dozens and dozens and dozens of employee files, and I don't remember what I was doing with them, um, but I was certainly getting a lot of paper cuts and doing kind of the more boring aspects of HR. Um, And I can remember a few times just knowing that there was something going on. You know, the HR leader was closing her door and people looked very serious. Um, But I certainly uh, wasn't getting any sort of information out of anybody there. And how did you land in HR? Why HR? Sure. Um, I think in my case, actually, there's almost been a deliberate not going into a traditional HR, right? Um, I knew that I wanted to work at the intersection of people and business. And I knew that from a really young age. In school, I remember an executive coach coming in for some reason and talking to us about his job. And I thought, oh, that's cool. That's interesting. But the types of HR leaders that I was interacting with were in my summer jobs, right? They were focused on, you know, what we were wearing, our timekeeping, disciplinary stuff. And I knew that I didn't want to do any of that. Um, Obviously, that work is important. And I do do some of that. And so I deliberately didn't want to study what to me seemed like, you know, a less strategic, less interesting thing. So um, instead, I read psychology in Dublin at Trinity and then did a master's in what you call in the United States industrial or organizational psychology, occupational psychology in Europe. Um, After that, I went into consulting with Accenture, which I would recommend to anybody. Consulting just gives you a great broad set of experiences from attention to detail, to change management, to client relationships. And my work there was all focused on helping organizations to transform, whether that's through learning or some communications work or change management work that I was doing. And at that point... Mm, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to say, Benoma, with that experience of having worked in a, a consultancy, what were the key takeaways for you? Because mm-hmm. after that, you went in-house um, yeah. to, to kind of lead HR functions. But what, what was it? What were the key takeaways for you? I think the real thing for me was being able to meet people where they are. So to understand the strategic imperatives that were driving the change. So typically it was a large scale IT transformation. So why is the organization doing this? Maybe there's cost efficiencies. Maybe there is some operational excellence. But then what does this mean for the actual person on the ground who hasn't made that decision, but has to live with that decision? So how do we make sure that they welcome this change, that it's clear for them how their role is going to change and what that looks like? And so to be able to kind of craft that story for those individuals to take the the big strategic decision that's been made and make that real for people is probably the number one skill. 
um, that I learned and to try and navigate through all of the different stages of change that people go through and to try and move towards outcomes. I think that's probably the biggest one. You also just work with um, a really varied group of people. Your team changes on you know a monthly basis almost as people join projects as you move on to other projects and it affords you I think a perspective that you don't necessarily get if you're going to work with the same people all the time um there's nothing routine you do bring skill sets and templates and things across projects but every time you start a new project it's like starting a new job and when you look at some of the you know HR transformation projects that you worked on Mm -hmm. And you look at the reasons why some of them were successful versus why others weren't as successful. Mm -hmm. What would you pin them down to? Mm -hmm. Making the case for change really clear to people and doing that from an early point. So there were times where my colleagues and I who worked in the talent and organization development space were brought in too late. So brought in to say, do the training associated with the system when really the right time to bring us in is up front when people right. are starting to be taken off of their work and put onto project teams to bring this new system or this new process change in. And so the more successful ones were the ones who had us there from the start so that when it came to things like training people in how to use the tool, that was easier because we knew what people needed to know in the moment and when, and we knew the, I suppose, psychological state they were bringing to that work. And so based on that, how do you now get buy-in in the organizations you're working when you're pitching to the C-suite mm -hmm. to get that mm -hmm. budget and to push through initiatives? How would you recommend you get buy-in from the C-suite? Yeah. So I think that art of storytelling is really, really important. It's a really crucial quality for a chief people officer and anyone in HR. And in order to tell a good story, you have to be a good listener. And not just hearing people, but actually listening to what they're saying and what they're not saying. You have to know what the strategy of the organization is. Like, what are we actually trying to achieve here? How do we do it? Why do we do it? What are our shareholders looking for and other stakeholders? What are What's on the CEO's mind? What's he or she thinking about every single day? And then how do we make that real? So in terms of seeking budget and approval for things, it's grinding it in. If we do this, it will make this difference to those strategic imperatives that we have. Right. I think data has been, you know, both a blessing and a curse in the people space in the past few years in the sense that now that we all have really high performance HRS and other systems, we've got so much data at our fingertips. We can use data to tell stories, but only if it's insights that you're using, right? There can be too much data and it can be hard to see the wood for the trees. You've got to identify what data is actually most meaningful and what it, what is that data telling you? And what's it not telling you? So building data into that compelling case as well. And just like when you're doing change management and you're trying to help, um, you know, a, a regular employee to understand the change, when you're going to someone looking for approval, whether it's the CEO or someone else, you've got to make the what's in it for me clear to them. What do I get from you doing that? That is kind of the universal truth, I think, of storytelling. If people can yeah. understand Okay, this program, this change, this piece of work makes my life easier, makes me more likely to be successful, is best practice, will give me this outcome. That's universally true, whether you're pitching to a CEO or whether you're trying to help a, you know, IT administrator to understand why they need to switch systems. 
And how did you go about developing that skill of storytelling? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say it was that intentional. It was more so just um, the requirement, really. And it was something that I realized early on, if I could sit with people and make sure that they felt heard and then speak to them in a language that they understood and that had meaning for them, that I would be more successful. So right. I think I think it's one of those things that we label soft skills that are actually the hard skills, right? It's one of those things that you just develop over time and you realize how many things get unlocked for you when you can do that well. And, and were there any particular skills that you did deliberately work on in your kind of journey to becoming a CPO mm-hmm. where you thought, okay, these are areas that I definitely need to mm-hmm. develop on if I'm going to take that leadership role? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I think for a lot of people like me who um, were working leading functional spaces within a HR team and and knowing that they wanted to be a CPO, you've got to try to find ways to broaden your experience. So let's say you're the talent acquisition leader. Okay, can you take on some sort of projects within the total reward space? You might not have that expertise, but is there something that you can do? Perhaps it's around how we formulate offers, right? So there's a little bit of overlap. If you are the head of HR business partnering, do you know enough about the work that's going on in the COEs of talent development and and TA and other spaces? Um, Are there opportunities as people kind of vacate seats or go out on leave for you to put your hand up and say, hey, I'm I'm willing and I'm interested to go and do that work? So I think that is really, really important is to seek out those sort of broad experiences. It's really important if you're a functional leader within a HR team to remember that you lead that function and you lead your team, but you are also a leader of the entire people function. And so don't just stay in your talent acquisition swim lane, for example. If you see a challenge in your space, chances are that that's also a challenge within the HR operations space or the total reward space or your talent development buddy is also dealing with the same thing. So raise those things up and and seek opportunities to solve for things at that, you know, cross team level and seek those opportunities to go and build your experience more broadly. What made you then decide to move from the consulting world Mm -hmm. and to go in-house? What drove that decision? Consulting at a certain level takes you further from the work and more about actually selling and upselling to the client. And um, at that point, a fintech company headquartered in Ireland with offices around Europe were looking for someone to run what they called organization development. Now, it did include HR, but the CEO was being really deliberate. I want somebody who's going to come to this role thinking about our strategy and how we make it real and how we change and evolve um, and be agile in the environment that we're in, which is fast-paced, you know, processing loads of transactions. Um, and, you know, he deliberately didn't want to be um, over-rotated to the work that has to happen in the HR space. Right. He wanted to be having conversations around leadership and change and transformation. And so that was the perfect fit for me. And I did that role for a number of years Um, And then after they were acquired, I became the HR leader at a company called Zendesk based in Europe. So running their people team in Europe, which was pretty complicated. I think we were in about six, seven, eight countries at the time. We were acquiring a company in France. 
there was a lot for me to get stuck into. We didn't even have a HRIS. Everything was on a spreadsheet. And so it was both a um, strategically challenging role because we were growing a lot and changing a lot as an organization, but then also operationally challenging on a day-to-day basis, trying to solve things like how are people going to log their time? So I learned a lot during that period. And about a year later, they asked me if I would relocate over to the United States to do a similar role, but for the Americas. So, you know, a bigger role, access to the C-suite. And that is really where things kind of took off for me. It was a role that grew exponentially as people went on leave, as people moved on, as we sort of had special projects or we were acquiring other companies. There were so many opportunities for me to either be asked or to put my hand up to lead particularly in spaces where I didn't know anything, but I was able to kind of figure it out. And with the advice and support of of colleagues, we generally got done what we needed to get done while scaling rapidly. So that for me was really um, where things kind of took off. And I found myself getting deeper skills across a broader range of people, team matters. How do you maintain focus, uh, Fidelma, in an environment where your fast-growing company, a lot is changing, like you mentioned. Companies are being acquired, mergers are happening. Um, so many things are changing. There's so much yeah. to do. How do you keep focused and, and I guess calm? Is is that the word? Can yeah. you stay calm in that environment? Yeah, definitely. You can and you have to. And look, we all have moments where we're not calm, where we're just like, oh my gosh, there's so much to do. How am I going to tackle this? Um, I typically just go and make a cup of tea and eat some chocolate and then it feels <laughs> it feels a bit more manageable after that. Um, but I do think that you have to figure out what is important, but not for right now. So, you know, there are things that I would love to be doing in my current role that are really, really important, particularly around diversity representation and, and, you know, inclusivity and other things that they're so important. And I've also got some fundamentals that I need to get right in terms of some compensation work that I want to I want to do. I've got some learning and development work that I'm introducing now. And I see that as kind of table stakes and really crucial. And I'm going to focus on that right now and do that really well. And then I'm really going to devote time and resources um, to kind of the next the next round of urgent priorities. Um, you can't do everything all at once. And I think one of the hardest decisions that we all make on a day-to-day basis is what doesn't get done. And it can be right. really difficult. And I'm talking actually to a lot of our um, specialists and coordinators here at the moment about the things that you choose not to do or the things that you do, you know, as they come up at the moment that could maybe become something that you just do monthly. Um, You know, it's important that you think about what am I doing now that actually really doesn't add value to the strategic goals of my functional area. And if it's not easy to draw that line, you've got to talk to your leader and say, hey, this is really important but I just don't think it's a priority right now. Do you agree? And it's okay to do that, right? Because as people teams, no matter what company you work in, right, we're always going to be um, constrained by resources or systems or the volume of transactional work that we have to do. What do you know now that you wish you knew when you took on your first Mm -hmm. leadership role? That's a really great question. what I, I I wish I had known how important it would be for people teams to be ready for the past few years. 
I think that the past few years have almost been like what the economic crash of 2008 was for CFOs, where suddenly that was like the most crucial role and everyone was hiring for it. In the past few years, we've been through so much as as societies from, you know, racial injustice, um, the pandemic, this move to remote working, um, climate issues. So many things have arisen that have really elevated the role of people leaders of all levels. And I think it would have been great to to have had some sort of foresight into that so that we could have been preparing the the you know up and coming people leaders for all of that change. Because if you are a people leader today, your job, no matter what you do, is fundamentally different to the job that you were doing three years right. ago. Um, you know, when we were just starting out in the pandemic and we thought, oh, this will this will pass. Um yeah. well, we'll be back doing it the way we're doing. And if you if you're doing something now that is the same way that you did it three years ago, well, you know, maybe you should look at that. Yeah. So I think for me it it would have been if we had known that, um, you know, I would have been working with my team on maybe more skills related to that, you know, on on turning learning into bite-sized chunks, on um, using technology and insights to figure out where employees are at and what they need, on being able to find ways to hear employee voices more so than I think most people teams did a few years ago. So, so many things like that, I think we've learned. And it, look, we're in a really, really prime position now as people leaders to help elevate organizations and bring them to the next level. That's, yeah, definitely seeing that. I think it's, it would be ideal if we could all look into the future and see that as coming. But I guess asking you a question about the future, when you look ahead over, say, the next 12 to 24 months, what do you think are going to be the big challenges for people mm. leaders? I do think that a lot of organizations are really focused now on spending wisely. I don't just mean in terms of headcount, but also in terms of the systems that they invest in. You know, a lot of organizations have, as you are well aware, multiple LMS tools in place, right? Um, From the sales teams, the people teams, like the legal team, the IT team. We're going to see a lot of consolidation um, of tools, a lot of questioning of, do we really, really need that tool? And all of that is occurring within the context of remote working, where very often we're relying upon tools to create this sort of collaboration and productivity boosts that in-person interaction used to do for us. You know, we're trying to recreate the water cooler moments using technology. And so I do think that that is going to be really important for a lot of HR leaders. We're all looking at things like travel, you know, how do we travel less, do it more intentionally, make the most of our time when we're out in the field, whether that's at conferences or meeting with our employees. Um, We're all looking at where we hire from, you know, are there partnerships that are giving us more value than others? And, and, you know, if it takes a little longer for a role to fill, then is that okay? And are we willing to, to deal with that in order to save? So I really do think the number one thing that might buddies and I are talking about is, okay, how can we streamline and how can we spend our dollars more wisely? Do you think it's possible to have work-life balance as a HR leader? I kind of prefer the concept of work-life integration. The work-life balance thing suggests that these two things are not in with each other, that they're separate, that they're fighting with each other. And actually, it's about work-life integration. And I do think that part of being any leader is figuring out how can I be most productive? And for you, that might mean 
going to the gym every day or it might be you know getting some alone time you know or really you know if you're an introvert going and recharging your batteries that way I do think that it's incumbent upon every leader to figure that out for themselves. And I say to my team, you know, you pay into the jar and you take from the jar. And there are some times where you've got a deadline, a system going live, a difficult to fill role, a merit cycle, and you're going to you're going to pay into that jar a lot more than normal. And I don't need to know then about the times where you're taking from the jar, right? The Fridays where you're checking your email, but you know, you're lying out in the sun or whatever. (laughs) Um, And I do think that that's important. Um, You know, for me, I have a long commute several days a week on the days where I don't commute. I make sure that at lunchtime, I skip over to the gym and work out for 40 minutes and come back. I'd make sure that those are the days that I'm picking up and dropping off my kids. You have to just find out that balance for you. Like a lot of people leaders, I'm probably never not thinking about work. You know, it's it's always in the back of my mind. The IT team actually this morning said to me, we've noticed that you keep sending yourselves e- yourself emails. And there's <laughs> some sort of a imitation uh, risk or whatever in their, in their software. But yeah, like I will think of things at random times of the night yeah. around the place and send myself an email. Um, you've got to figure out what that's about. You've got to use tools like scheduled send in emails and Slack so that you're not imposing your um, hours on others and just be really mindful of that. But really, it's it's important that everyone just figures out how to integrate all of those things. It is absolutely possible to do. All right. Over to the quick fire round. Are you ready? I don't think so. <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> You'll be fine. Um, first one for you is, what's your best productivity hack? Oh, my goodness. Probably, yeah, I would do a lot of the scheduled send on Slack um, where I think of things or I might be I might be even driving and I'll dictate um, like talk to text and schedule that so that my team member sees it at a a more normal hour. And I think that's really important, particularly when you have people all around the world like I do. Yeah, I, I think that recording yourself has been a game changer for me. I downloaded something about six months ago called Just Record on My Phone just to think out thoughts. Mm-hmm. And it's been super helpful and it automatically transcribes it for you and said so you need to share it afterwards. Super helpful. So yes. I, I definitely recommend that one. Um, Another one, there- if I... Oh, if I could offer yeah. another one, it's, you know, as people leaders, we're always trying to balance this tactical day-to-day stuff that comes up and the more strategic, I've got to go away and think about our definition of leadership, for example, block out time in your calendar and stick to it, right? That is time that is important. It's time where you look away from your screen, you've got a blank piece of paper and you're literally thinking, maybe you're walking and thinking, but time where you're actually just focused on um something other than what your email and your stock notifications say you should be focused on. For sure. Um, is there a favorite book or podcast? Oh, um, well, there is, but it's not people related. So probably won't That's go there. Right. Um, it, there's one by some very, very funny Irish comedians that I'm listening to at the moment Two women around my age um, called My Therapist Ghosted Me. That gives me a lot of laughs on my long drive down to our Silicon Valley office. Um, in terms of books at the moment, I'm reading um, Bono's book actually called Surrender. So it's history of his life and his story and what inspired him. I'm finding that really interesting. The best piece of advice you've been given? Um, 
stop talking probably yeah. <laughs> definitely working on um yeah look I think the best advice comes from people who tell you to slow down and listen and to think of other perspectives I think that's really really important advice and certainly advice that I've gotten um I have gotten advice in the past from people I actually work for. See, I, I can think of a CPO that I was working for a few years ago. I had this CPO job offer and I had to figure out, do I, did I want to go for it or did I want to stay where I was getting maybe broad experience um, where I was learning from her and, you know, her being in that position of radical openness with me of like, okay, you work for me, but I can see beyond that. I can see that you're going to at some point go and be a CPO. Let's talk about whether this is the right opportunity for you. And she helped me to realize that, no, it wasn't, that actually I could learn a lot more and then um, explore other CPO opportunities when it was the right time for me personally um, and, you know, play that sort of longer term game for longer term outcomes as well. And, And she was absolutely right. The last one for you is... What are you most proud of? Um, I'm definitely proud of, you know, the personal journey of taking on roles where maybe I didn't have the full breadth of experience and figuring it out at the time and, and, and that kind of paying off. And that's happened a few times in my career, whether it was, hey, can you go to France and figure out how to acquire these 30 people? Um, or welcome to the United States. Can you help us like manage these employee relations issues when I had no idea of the law here? Um, or, you know, yay, welcome to your first chief people officer job. Go figure it out. Um, I'm definitely proud of that ability to kind of parse through the noise and figure out, okay, what do I need to do in this moment? And also what do I need to do this particular week to handle the transactional requirements but also to kind of move us forward as a people function it's been an absolute pleasure Fidelma thank you very much for taking the time out and coming on the show thank you Nelson I appreciate it wish you the very very best thank you for listening to another brilliant episode of L&D Disrupt the podcast that's powered by HowNow our learning experience platform helps companies bring relevant learning and skills into the flow of work to make meaningful learning a part of everyday work. But don't just take our word for it. Here's what some of our customers have to say. And if you like what you hear and want to learn more about How Now, just use the link in the description to book a demo. As a loyal L&D Disrupt listener, we'll send you a swag pack containing a copy of the book Learning at Speed and some How Now merch once we've shown you around. And we needed somewhere to have a central home for all of the learning content that was being created at Pace. And we also really wanted to to support and modernise learning. So moving to that 70-20-10 model, where learning is really integrated into the flow of work at the point of need. And we knew that HowNow would be the perfect platform to support with that modernised approach. And I was confident that HowNow was right for FitFlop because it passed the eyeball test at the Learning Technologies Conference, number one. Does it look like it's going to be user-friendly and people might actually want to use it? My previous companies, I'm used to using very clunky LMSs that don't do much to help with engagement. We've just launched How Now, actually, um, where I am at the moment with Lucid Group. And um, what we've focused on is the building of habits around learning. So trying to get people into healthy and regular habit of learning 
so that it becomes an everyday activity as opposed to something they have to take lots of time out. We're very time poor. The tools they've got, the information they need is where they need it at the point. So integrating into Microsoft Teams as we use it or any other collaboration tool, making sure that any learning is accessible at their point of need. So um, where they can ask a search first question and then um, we can provide them the information they need straight away.